Well, my ears per- when uh, Elder Tim mentioned that Keith Coleman talked about um, evil King Asa and uh, that he burned his children, or at least one of his children, uh, on the altar of Moloch. So I don't know whether you've already had uh, left some, a uh, sermon on Micah, but that's what I'm going to be talking about today, uh, in part, uh, is the book of Micah from which uh, one of the prophecies mentioned in our scripture reading today comes. So we, we, saw part, we saw Matthew's story of the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and a basic theme of Matthew's gospel is to present Jesus as, Jesus as Messiah and King, or Christ and King. You know, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's his title. He, he's the anointed one. He was the one given a purpose by the Father to save his people from his sins to save us from our sins. Now, at the beginning of this book, uh, the book of Matthew, uh, you saw a genealogy. We reread the very last part of it. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David unto the carrying away into Babylon are 14 generations, and from the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. And then the book starts, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So seeing the tie-in to David and to Abraham, the son of promise. The, that the son of David means that Jesus rightfully is the heir to the throne of King David, fulfilling a promise uh, that God made to him. And then we have Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judas and his brethren, and Judas begat, and on and, go, on and goes, begat, 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 begat. If you look at the verse preceding the one we read uh, today, verse 16, it says, And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. Did you catch it? Begat, 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 born. How come? Well, Matthew's trying to tell us something there, isn't he? Joseph was born uh, by natural means. Jesus was also born, but not by natural means. He was born of a virgin. So he was fully human, but he didn't inherit sinfulness. It's very important because if Jesus was born by natural means, he couldn't save even himself from his sins because even if he never committed one, he still inherited a sin nature. So an important thing that we kind of just fly by as we're reading all the begats. Jesus was begotten by the Father, but he was born to Mary. Um, <clears throat> and we, just as a sort of a side note here, we, we, I just want to mention a little bit about Joseph here. You know, Joseph is Jesus' stepfather, and we don't know a lot about him, but we, we do see some things about him. We see that he was a just man. In other words, he did what was right in God's sight. 
which would imply that he was righteous. Um, we see that he was obedient to the Lord in that he did not divorce Mary. His desire to, instead of making Mary a laughingstock, he was going to divorce her privately, privately, privately. Um, so we see mercy and kindness in Joseph as well. Um, <clears throat> and he did this to make clear the miraculous birth of Jesus. Um, I'm sorry, I got in the wrong spot on my notes here. He um, named the child Jesus because God told him to. And of course, Jesus literally means Savior. He shall save his people from his sins. And he pulled up his roots and fled to Egypt because God told him to. So just as an aside, men, we should be like Joseph. Jesus, Joseph trusted God, believed him, and did what he said. He was a man of faith. He was a man of character. He was a man that had the attributes of kindness and mercy as well. Any of the ladies who are unmarried here, if you're looking for a husband, look for a Joseph, a just man, a kind man, an obedient man. Now, we pick up the story uh, sometime after Jesus' birth, at least 40 days and perhaps as long as two years after, and we have the visit of the wise men, or the, the magi. <clears throat> They've been following the star to bring honor to a new king which had been born. Apparently the star had disappeared for a time, so they logically went to the capital city. Where, where would you expect to find a king? At the capital city, right? So they went to Jerusalem um, <clears throat> to seek out this new king. Now remember, Jesus had been on earth anywhere from 40 days to two years or so. Um, and the shepherds had no doubt told many about his birth. It was an amazing thing that happened to them. Yet those that held religious and civil power apparently had no idea that he was born. Remember, did you, they were troubled. They were shocked. A new king? Nobody told us. Well, maybe they were, just weren't listening. But in any case, the ones who should have known about it didn't. So Herod, of course, an evil king, but one who was not above killing his own children to make sure that he stayed king, was, kind of, was very troubled about this. So he, he got the chief priests and the rabbis together and Where's this king supposed to be born? And of course, they quoted from the book of Micah. And thou, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah are not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Now think about what happened next. The wise men leave, and they go seeking out Jesus, the king of kings. And they bring Gifts worthy of a king. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They worshipped this king as God. Recognizing him not only as king, but as their savior. Did anyone go with them? 
No, Herod said, you go and find him and tell me where he is so I can, I can worship him. So I can worship him, right? Shouldn't, the, shouldn't have the, the political and religious leaders of the day been interested to go and see this king? See this savior? And yet, only the wise men came. You see around, signs around, wise men still seek him. Foolish people live as if there is no God. That's what the, de- what the definition of a fool is. Wise people seek our Savior. So that's our first application today. Um, the ones who knew the Scripture, they obviously knew the Scripture. They were able to quote it from memory and say, oh, Bethlehem, king. But they didn't trust the Scripture They didn't trust the God of the Scripture, did they? They didn't have enough faith to believe that Messiah had arrived. Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection demand a response from us. Many will be like those ancient political and religious leaders who will either ignore him, seek to destroy him at that time, or seek to destroy the faith of those who would choose to seek him out. So we have to be like those wise men. We need to worship our Savior and King. We need to offer our gifts, our talents, and ourselves to him. Matthew Henry stated that the prophecy found in Micah 5, 2 is, quote, perhaps the most important single prophecy in the Old Testament. It respects the personal character of Messiah and the discoveries of himself to the world. It distinguishes his human birth from his existing from eternity. It foretells the rejection of the Israelites and Jews for a season, their final restoration, and the universal peace to prevail through the whole earth in latter days. So I thought it might be a good idea if we looked through the book of Micah today. We'll we'll do a survey of it. So Micah starts out, if you want to turn your Bibles uh, to the book of Micah, and we're going to look, first of all, at chapter 1. So if you get to Daniel, and then you'll come to Hosea, and then you'll come to Joel, or Amos rather, then Joel. I had it right the first time, Joel Amos. (laughs) And then you'll come to, to Jonah, and then you'll come to Micah. And I left out Obadiah. <laughs> Not doing well today. Um, better at finding the book than getting it in order. But in any case, Micah. You know, the, these smaller prophecies, they're called minor prophets. Well, they're not minor because their message isn't, isn't important. They're minor because they're little books. But they have a lot of important things to tell us, I think. So, the word of the Lord that came to Micah, <clears throat> the Morashite, uh, in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear all ye people, hearken, O earth, and all that therein is, and let the Lord God, that's uh, Adonai Jehovah, be witness against you, the Lord, from his holy temple. For behold, 
the Lord, the, the Jehovah, cometh forth out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. So Jesus, this is speaking of Jesus here, and he's, he is indeed Jehovah. Now Micah's home was, was, uh, was uh, Morsheth. <clears throat> it's located about 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem near Gath of Philistia. So right about where all the trouble is. Um, Micah is a shortened version of uh, Micaiah, which means who is like Jehovah, who, who is like the Lord. Micah's name played a role in his prophecy, as, as we'll see as we go along. So Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah and Hosea. So Hosea was a prophet of Israel. He was up in the northern kingdom. Uh, but Isaiah and Micah lived in the southern kingdom, uh, although both in part, and Micah mainly, uh, was prophesying, or also in part, was prophesying to the northern kingdom, even though they lived in the southern kingdom. Micah's prophecy and Isaiah's prophecy are examples of uh, Israel, uh, of um, Hebrew poetry as well. So Micah and Isaiah are poets. However, Isaiah was of royal lineage, and he ministered at the royal court. Well, Micah, he was a country boy, and he ministered mainly to the common people in the countryside. So as we look to the, at the, these first verses, we see that Micah ministered during the reigns of three kings of Judah. Um, Jotham, who reigned from 750 to 735 B.C., and he was a relatively righteous king. Then we had Ahaz. And you learned last week that he was an awful, evil king. Killed at least one of his sons, offering him on the idol to the idol Molech. And then we have Hezekiah, who is probably, besides David, the best king of Israel. He started out evil, but he repented of his sin and he became among the most righteous of all the kings of Israel. Um, so Micah prophesied for a long time, several decades. Uh, he makes no reference to the kings of the northern kingdom because in this book, he pronounces doom on the northern kingdom. In other words, they were so cemented in their sin that, that God was no longer going to spare he was going to bring them unto judgment. You know, if, we, if we fail to repent, even we as Christians could fall into sin. If we fail to repent, God is going to eventually do something about it. Um, and in some cases, you can wait too long and you're going to get the consequences of your sin. That's what happened to the northern kingdom. And of course, the lesson was for the southern kingdom. Watch what you're doing here. You're, you're being very faithful in, in doing all the sacrifices. I don't like your sacrifices, God says. Why? Because their hearts weren't in it. They were, they were having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. 
So in the beginning of Hezekiah's reign, he followed, as I mentioned, the footsteps of wicked Ahaz. Um, Micah 3, 8 and 9 says, But truly I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord and of judgment of might to declare unto Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Hear this, I pray you, ye heads of the house of Jacob and princes of the house of Israel, that abhor judgment, abhor justice, and pervert all equity. In other words, they were in, why were they kings? Not to serve, to enrich themselves, to amass power, to have a good time. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> the Assyrians overran the northern kingdom. That was God's punishment to the northern kingdom. Well, guess what? They overran a good part of Judah as well. We know the story. Hezekiah repented of his sin, and Isaiah says, don't worry about Jerusalem, Hezekiah. God's going to take care of you. Now, Hezekiah responded in faith and said, okay. You know, I will try to ally myself with some other world power. I'll, I'll trust God. And we know the story. The angel of the Lord came, probably the Lord Jesus, and wiped out 185,000 Assyrians in one night. And off they go. And eventually, Sennacherib is killed by his own sons, worshiping his false god. I'm getting away from my sermon here. <laughs> but um, Hezekiah did hear. Hezekiah did hearken. Ahaz refused to hearken. Um, Ahaz refused to humble himself in our call to worship. You know, what, what's God want from us? Well, he wants us to do good things, to be righteous. He wants us to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly. King Ahaz wouldn't do any of those things. That's why he was going to be given a sign. And we'll talk about that more in a bit. So, as, as we... Consider these things. We need to be, again, like Hezekiah instead of like his father Ahaz. We, can, we need to hear. We can urge other people to hear. We can help people to hearken, to pay attention, to act on what God is telling us and them. Hezekiah carried out both moral and social reforms. He cried out to his king and savior for mercy. God heard and forgave. So we can also cry out to our king and savior who promises to hear from heaven, forgive our sins, and heal our land. You notice that, that, that comes from Chronicles, as we know. And who has to cry out for forgiveness for God to heal our land? We do. We do just like King Hezekiah did. So as we go through a brief survey of uh, the book of Micah, we see some prevailing themes. One is the call for personal and social righteousness. About one-third of this book targets the sins of God's people. One-third deals with their punishment. We talked in Sunday school about Christians being chastised if they fail to repent. So that God needs to get our attention and cleanse us 
He has, so he has to chastise us at times because we kind of get thick-headed, don't we? Um, and then one-third deals with the promises of hope for the righteous. So we see God's commitment to judge sin, but also his blessing on those that repent, those who listen to what he tells us. So chapter 1 could be, co- be titled Samaria's Doom, the Northern Kingdom's Doom. In chapters 2 and 3, we see the brutality of the rulers, the horrible things they were doing, like sacrificing infants or older kids to idols. We see word pictures of their merciless treatment of the poor as they seize their lands, evict pregnant women, and even seize the clothing of the poor. Why would, why would rich people seize the clothing of the poor? Do you think they wanted to wear it? <laughs> they were just being mean for the sake of being mean. People don't do that today, do they? Nah, couldn't happen. Um, we, later we see these corrupt ones pictured as wild beasts and cannibalistic butchers. God's people. Chapter 4 is a picture of Zion's universal reign during the millennium, but then reverts suddenly to pronounce Jerusalem's doom. Uh, And Jerusalem's doom was postponed by about 100 years because of Hezekiah's leading in national uh, repentance. That could happen for us too. You know, the United States has gone through several um, revivals. Great Awakening being one of the chief ones. In other words, even in colonial times, things got pretty bad in America. In chapter 6, Jehovah indicts his people, and in chapter 7, we see the final triumph of the king and his people. So let's let's go to chapter 5. We're going to spend most of our time there. Um, And... We see, now gather thyself in troops, O daughter of troops. He hath laid siege against us. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that shall be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth hath been from old, from everlasting. So this is what was quoted in part in Matthew, wasn't it? So the, 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 the religious people knew what the Bible said. They didn't apply it to their lives. Can we fall into the same trap? I think we can. I know we, I do. Verse 3, Therefore will he give them up until the time that she which travaileth hath brought forth, then the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel. We learned about that in Sunday school today. God has given up the Jews to blindness and deafness spiritually, and yet promises one day they will realize, they will look upon him who they pierced. They'll come to repentance. And he, that's Messiah, that's Jesus, shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide, for now shall he be great unto the ends of the earth. The prophecy is difficult for us to understand because 
The prophets, they were seeing it all at once. And remember, Michael is also writing poetically as well. Some of this will have a short-term fulfillment. Some of it will have a long-term fulfillment in both the first and second coming of Christ. Some of it's being fulfilled in us even now. Um, <clears throat> Verse 5, And this man shall uh, be the peace when the Assyrian shall come into our land and when he shall tread in our palaces. Then shall we raise against him seven shepherds and eight principal men, and they shall waste the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod in the entrances thereof. Thus shall he deliver us from the Assyrian which cometh into our land when he treadeth within our borders. I think that's coming in the second coming, by the way. The reason, for, as I mentioned, the, 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 we, we have trouble understanding these books because future deliverances often miss, mix with aspects of Christ's first and second coming. He came the first time as our savior. He's coming secondly as a king and as a, as a judge. So we can see this in Micah along with the abrupt transitions between the sins of the people, their destruction, their future restoration, and future glory. Thus in the preceding chapter, in chapter 4, we, uh, about the millennia, we see um, the reign of Jesus, the uh, Judas Babylonian captivity is predicted, the siege of Jerusalem by the Assyrians, and a picture of the day when Israel will permanently defeat their enemies. And then back to the in chapter 5, verse 1, back to the siege of Jerusalem. All mixed together. Um, have to have our wits about us when we, when we read this prophecy. Or the Holy Spirit has to illumine our minds. So in 5.1, we see the judge of Israel being hit with a rod, an instrument of judgment on the cheek. Now historically, I think that's a picture of the last king of Judah, Zedekiah, being... Uh, captured and defeated by King Nebuchadnezzar. So the Chaldean army and King Nebuchadnezzar were God's instrument of judgment, smiting Zedekiah and the people of Judah. You know, in ancient times, slapping someone in the cheek was a pretty big insult. I, I assume that's still so today. I don't think any of us would enjoy that. Um, I think we can see some other insulting slaps in the, in the word picture that Micah paints. Uh, we have the slaps of Jesus that Jesus took from the guards on his last night. We see the figurative slap of rejection by his people, the Jews, resulting in his crucifixion. We see a historical result, the Babylonian captivity. Um, we can also see the result of their rejection of Messiah. Their, their strong delusion that they won't believe that their king and savior came until finally he comes again. We see here that God in his mercy wants to give his people encouragement that even in judgment there are still hope of deliverance. When we're troubled, when, sometimes we're troubled because of our own sin. Sometimes we're troubled because God is using that trouble to knock off our rough edges, to refine us. But even if we're being chastised, God wants us to know there's still hope. It's not going to last forever. We're going to be with him forever, but it's not going to 
Any chastisement will not be forever. Historically, the deliverance of Jerusalem from the Assyrians is the result of national repentance, but off of the prophetic distance, we see a, great, a far greater deliverer making his advent from eternity past. But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrata. So Bethlehem is the Bethlehem in Judah. That's why Bethlehem, Ephrata. Apparently there was another Bethlehem in the kingdom of Israel uh, in the north. So it might seem small and unimportant. Uh, but, it, but our key verse here says it's not small in honor. The savior of the world, the ultimate Davidic king, the king of kings, was born in Bethlehem. The name Bethlehem means house of bread, and Ephrata refers to productivity. And the area was also known for its productive vineyards. Think there was an, uh, that was an accident that, that Jesus was born in Bethlehem? What does Jesus call himself? I am the bread of life. In communion, he uses the fruit of the vine to show, depict what? His blood. Without the remission of, without uh, the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. He was born in an area that was known for its bread and its wine. Our king and our savior is our sustainer. That's what bread of life is all about, right? He's going to meet our needs. He'll meet our physical needs. He'll meet our emotional needs. He'll meet our spiritual needs, our intellectual needs. Of course, the spiritual ones are the most important, aren't they? He meets our needs and fills us with the bread of his word. And remember, this was a very productive area. Plant a few seeds, you get a lot of grain. He wants us to be productive as well, doesn't he? He wants us to produce fruit, and then much fruit, and then more fruit. Fruit of the Spirit. For the remainder of chapter 5, verses 4 through 14, we see again a description of Christ's millennial rule and his deliverance of the Jewish people. I think we can make a, an application, however, to our present age, uh, the church age. For example, in verses 4 through 6, we see the strength of our Savior King and his majesty. His people, and, and that includes us, remember, we're, we're engrafted in, we are Abraham's seed as well. Um, it may enjoy peace and safety while we abide with him. Verse 4. And he shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of his name of the Lord his God, but Jehovah is Elohim, and they shall abide, for now shall he be great unto the ends of the earth. Uh, the Assyrians, though historical, may also can be seen as a type of the chaos of this world, the flesh and the devil. Those are our enemies today, aren't they? We may not have physical enemies, hopefully not, but we have much more dangerous foes. When we combine Micah 5, uh, with, which is the only reference to the location of Messiah's birth, birthplace with Isaiah 9.6, for example, that says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, 
and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, or Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. We see that the baby born in Bethlehem was indeed wonderful. It should fill us with a sense of awe, a sense of wonder that God, Jehovah, Elohim, all that God is, Jesus is, because he is God. He laid that all aside. He wants us to walk humbly before him. Well, what did he do? He took all the glory of heaven and said, eh, I'm taking it off. He could have come to earth as a full-grown man. He came as a helpless baby. Can we humble ourselves? He certainly set an example for us, didn't he? It should be a source of amazement that he would do something like that. And even more amazing, die for us. Keith, you did that? I'm going to die for you anyway. Not that you deserve it, but I'm going to die for you anyway. He is indeed wonderful. Our mighty God, our King, our Savior fulfills all these roles, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father, so on, as he protects us from the physical and spiritual Assyrians of our days. Thus our souls can indeed dwell in ease with him. The remainder of the chapter describes God's reformation of the Jews and their guaranteed victory over their enemies. We should too be assured of victory in our personal lives over the world, the flesh, and the devil. In the sixth chapter, Micah presents the Lord's indictment of his people. In this indictment, we see a list of sins that plagued God's people then and sadly is often seen in our country today. Ingratitude to God, religious pretense. We, they, we, we look religious, but is our heart in it? Dishonesty, idolatry, the idol of money, the idol of fame, the idol of a girlfriend or a boyfriend, a husband, a wife, a friend whatever we're putting ahead of God is our idol, isn't it? We can take warning because guess what? We're no different as God's people than God's people were thousands of years ago. We're just as easily capable of falling. So Micah 6, 6 and 7, wherewith shall I come before the Lord, Jehovah, and bow myself before the high God, Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and with calves of, of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? Which they were doing for Moloch, weren't they? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Does God want any of that? No. Although he gave his firstborn, didn't he? First begotten. Michael's asking rhetorical questions, and the readers should have known the answer to every one of those questions was no. Now, were they supposed to carry on the sacrifices? Of course. But 
with pure hearts. Now, why, why these sacrifices? To atone for sin. Well, maybe they didn't really think they were all that bad. Here comes the, 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 the ultimate story of Micah. We read it in our call to worship. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good. We know what God wants us to do. And what doth the Lord, what does Jehovah, require of thee? But to do justly. Do the right. To love mercy. Be kind one to another. Tender-hearted. Forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. And to walk humbly with thy God. So does God want sacrifices with no meaning? No. He wants our hearts. Our Savior came to Bethlehem to be born as a baby, to do what the blood of millions of lambs and goats could never do, provide atonement for our sins. Our king is not interested or impressed with outward show, being holier than thou. Micah asks us, uh, in the light of God's faithfulness, um, how the people could continue in their hypocrisy. They faithfully showed themselves religious. Well, you want God? I'm doing what you told me to do. Now, you did say bring the best of my herd, and I'm bringing the one with the eyeball hanging out, but I'm still doing what you said, aren't I? Close. Close enough for government work anyway. They showed themselves religious, but their hearts were far from him. We can be guilty of the same. That's why God wrote his word to warn us off. So as we look at verse 8, we need to remember that, however, that we can't earn our salvation. Well, God, surely you have to let me into heaven. I did this, and I did that, and I did this, and I gave this, and I, I, you know, I gave a million dollars to put a new roof on the church. Surely that earns me some brownie points, doesn't it? God doesn't give brownie points. He gives rewards for faithful service. So, our Savior King wants committed hearts. And from that, right behavior will, will flow. You know, why were we saved? We were, we were made new creatures unto good works. The indwelling Holy Spirit, in fact, the indwelling triune God, will help us indeed to do justly, to love mercy, and walk humbly with our King. Lastly, in chapter 7, Micah exposes the sin of the people, showing them, as I mentioned before, to be bloodthirsty, to be untrustworthy, and full of mischievous desires. Describes them as being sharper than thorn bushes. Ever caught by a thorn? They hurt. God's people were not single thorns, they were thorn bushes. 
Ever fallen into a thorn bush? <laughs> fallen into the hands of someone who wants to harm you while they appear to be Christians? They're seekers of bribes. Verses Chapter 7, verse 2 and 3a sum them up quite well. The good man is perished out of the earth, and there's none upright among men. They all, <clears throat> they all lie in weight of blood. They hunt every man, his brother, with a net, that, that they may do evil with both hands earnestly. Did you catch that? The wicked are so desirous of doing evil that they do it with both hands. Can't do it fast enough. Yet there's hope in our Savior King. Micah offers confession of sin and petitions for mercy. The one who uh, was born as just a little babe in Bethlehem was named Jesus because he came to save his people. That's us from their sins. In verses 14 through 17, Micah asks God to shepherd, feed, and protect his people. Our Savior, our King, our good shepherd did so. He turned back the Assyrians. He does the same for us. In response, his people extolled their loving Lord. Chapter 7, verses 18 through 20. Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgressions of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. His chastisements don't last forever. He will turn again. He'll, he'll let up. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities. Paul had besetting sins. Could he, could he overcome, them on, overcome them on his own? No. But the Lord could subdue those sins. He can do the same for us. Promises to do so. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities and thou will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. If you, throw, if you go on an ocean cruiser and ride in the middle of the Pacific and get to the Mariana Trench, it's like seven miles deep, and your watch falls off your wrist and falls into the ocean, think you're ever going to get that back? Think our sins will ever be returned upon us? Face God's wrath? Nope. One of my favorite verses says that God removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. I've probably shared this with you before, but if I go to the North Pole and I turn around, no matter what way I turn, what direction will I be facing? South. North and south meet. If I go to the South Pole and I turn around, every direction I'm facing will be north. If I could walk in water, and whichever way east is, start heading east, and I cross the Atlantic Ocean, and I cross, I'm not sure where we would be here, Europe, southern Europe maybe, and I cross Asia, and I cross the Pacific, and I cross Hawaii, and I cross California and all the other states and come back here, Will I ever be facing west? Uh-uh, because east and west don't meet. Our sins are gone. Because God's merciful. 
Thou wilt perform the truth of Jacob and the mercy to Abraham when thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. Remember, Micah's name is actually Micaiah. It means, who's like the Lord? Is there anybody like our God? As we consider the babe born in Bethlehem, our King and Savior, let's remember what he did in saving us. Psalm 103.12 says that he removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. Isaiah 1.18 says that God completely cleanses us from the, from the stains of our sins. He cleanses our conscience as well. Satan likes to keep reminding us of the things that we've done. God doesn't do that. But we be, our sins be red, they can be white as wool. Scarlet, white as snow. Isaiah 38, 17 shows us that God throws our sins behind his back. Jeremiah 31, 34 assures us that God remembers our sins no more. And you know, when God uses the word remember, he doesn't just mean recall. I remember that George Washington was the first president. We would say. But really, we should say, I recall that George Washington is the first president. Because remember, when God uses the word remember, he means that he not only recalls it, but he's going to do something about it. If God remembers our sins, that means he's going to do something about it. God's going to remember the sins of those that reject Christ, and they'll get his wrath. God doesn't remember our sins against us, He's not going to act, we're not going to get wrath. And he doesn't even recall them. He's not, you know, 10 billion years from now, God isn't going to come up to me someday and say, that was pretty stupid of you, Keith. Can't believe you did that. That really hurt. That, that nail right there, that really hurt. What'd you do that for? Those sins are forgotten. Micah 7.19, we're told that God subdues our sins. In ancient warfare, a conquered enemy is pictured with the foot of the conqueror on the throat of the defeated. So that could have been translated that God treads our sins underfoot. Our Lord Jesus has conquered sin and death. And hell. This Christmas and in the new year, let us pray like Micah for each other that our Savior King will take care of his church. Let us remember that he removes our sins from us, he cleanses us and our consciences from our guilty stains. He puts our sins behind him. That, and what does that mean? We should turn our backs to them too. We rest assured that God remembers our sins against us no more, that through his grace we've been given faith to believe so that our sins are subdued, they're buried, and we've been made alive. For by grace I save through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath foreordained that we should walk in them. Beloved, let's provoke each other 
in love and good works. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness towards us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Help us remember that Christ was born in Bethlehem, a productive land of bread and the fruit of the vine. Picture of communion, picture of fellowship, a picture of what he did for us. Help us to stand in wonder of you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.